Well, my friends, it is awesome to be with you and uh, to share together in this word that the Lord has for us tonight. So we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, if you're in the church's Bible, on page 766. Ecclesiastes 5, page 766. If you'd like a title, title for tonight's message is, You Can't Take It With You. So most Bibles have um, assorted, assorted uh, subtitles or titles for chapter 5. Um, mine says, Fear God and Keep Your Vows, which is, which is powerful, but I think really misses the point that Solomon is trying to make in this chapter. So um, I have, have kind of understood this chapter with two parts, and the first part refers to God, and the second part refers to man, or really has a focus on God and a focus on man. And so there's a few different things that Solomon addresses for us. The first thing is he addresses how to worship God, and he talks about taking vows or making promises to the Lord. And then for man, he talks about oppression and injustice, the vanity of wealth, and how to properly use wealth. And so you remember that Amos, excuse me, Amos, um, Solomon is investigating life. He is on a journey to investigate all of the things that happen under the sun or without an eternal perspective. And so most each chapter that we've studied, it seems like a variation of the same message, that without God, there is complete vanity, and there is no good to come from our lives. But that we have a choice to make. Knowing these things about God does nothing unless we follow God. So we'll go ahead and read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 20 together, and you'll You'll notice these things as we read, as Solomon mentions them. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1. Solomon says, Walk prudently when you go into the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God, that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. 
if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of injustice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleeping of a laboring, excuse me, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begats a son, there is nothing in his hand. Also he came from his mother's womb naked, shall he return, to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, he shall so shall he go. For what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and employ the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives for him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Now this is pretty typical Solomon writing, right? This seems like a really long proverb that we would read. And yet I think there are many things that are quoted from this chapter, like let our words be few. Um, the laboring man's sleep is sweet. Naked from my mother's womb I came, naked I will return. And things like this are pulled completely out of context for really twisted meanings that have all to do with us. And if there's anything Solomon wants to teach us in this chapter, it's that nothing has anything to do with us. Everything to do with us is vanity. So initially he is going to talk about God. He's going to talk about going into the house of worship. So really, I think that this is part A and the second is part B, and that is always the way it should be. For worship and for God are part A, and we and our lives are part B. But we get that so twisted, don't we? So he starts out by talking about worshiping God, and these first few verses are just jam-packed with spiritual meaning. First, he says, walk prudently. This first word, walk, is, is a Hebrew synonym for one's journey, for one's relationship, for one's spiritual condition. So he says, let your spiritual condition be prudent. Some of your translations 
may say well kept or care for it. This is a word we know, the word shamar, which means to keep watch, to guard, or to observe. It is a word that is used as an instruction for us to keep the Lord's commandments, that we're not just supposed to, just supposed to read the law, but we are supposed to keep it and observe it. He says, this is how our relationship with God is to be kept watch, guarded, and observed. Then he says, when you go into the house of God, the house of God, the bait of God, this is any place where we are worshiping the Lord. And so really it's bigger than the temple. It's bigger than the tabernacle. It is bigger than any congregation. It is anywhere where we are calling ourselves a follower of God. We are to walk with care. We are to walk with wisdom. He says, and draw near to hear rather than to give. Let's stop there. We are to draw near in house of worship to hear. This is the word that we read tonight, the Shema. And Shema means to observe, excuse me, it means to obey. It means to listen. It means to receive. So even if we think of this place where we have gathered, where we have congregated to worship the Lord, it's not to share a meal, it's not to quote scripture, it's not simply to read in our Bible. We are to gather in this place to Shema, to obey, to listen, and to receive. Rather, rather, Solomon says, than to give the sacrifice of fools. That in of itself is kind of a complex statement because a a fool is somebody that we are not to call a brother or sister, right? Jesus is pretty clear about that because really a fool is one who has no use for God's ways. And he has paired this with a sacrifice. This isn't some random word. This is a word that means a sacrifice like one would bring before the Lord. So he says we are to hear, we are to obey, we are to listen, rather than to to offer a sacrifice of fools. He goes on and says, for they do not know that they do evil. Solomon is saying that in houses of worship, there are many offering a sacrifice of fools. There are many that come into the Lord's house thinking that they're following the Lord's ways, thinking they are diligent followers of the Lord, yet they are filled with evil, Solomon says. They don't know it. This word for know is really not a word that means ignorant, as if they don't know, but they're really not aware of the gravity of what they're doing. The Lord's house is filled with those that are not aware of the gravity of the evil that they are doing. That they are coming into the Lord's house not to hear, not to obey, not to listen, but with a false sacrifice. And he tells us what this is. He says, do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So he qualifies these two sacrifices of fools to say we should be reminded of our station in life. 
We are not on par with God. We are not walking through a field holding hands with Jesus. We are not high-fiving him as if he is our co-pilot and our buddy and our co-passenger. He is in heaven. He is in the spiritual realm. And we are here on earth, separated from him unless we are connected to him. So because of this fact, we should not be rash with our words. We should not rush into this place with our our list of things that not only are we bringing before the Lord, but we want to alert the Lord to that needs his attention. And let not our heart utter anything hastily before God. These almost seem like two different statements, but see, we can say things with our mouth that our heart does not mean. He addresses both of these to say, we should be careful not to utter with our mouth, and more than that, that our heart would not be positioned in such a passive, superficial, arrogant way. Therefore, therefore let our words be few. This doesn't mean that we don't say anything. It doesn't mean that we come before the Lord and we don't have anything to say, but instead that our words would be filled with purpose. That we should not be offering word vomit and word salad and all of our things before the Lord, but that we should think before we speak. If we had an audience with the king, if we had an audience with the president, our words would be few. They would not be hasty. They would not be filled with our our meaningless nothings of our lives, but they would be careful and well thought out. He goes on and he says, For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by as many words. The dream he's talking about is not a spirit-led dream like the visions we read about in Daniel or in Amos, but, but dreams that are, that are filled with fantasy and, and, and wishes and desires that we have. See, those that are pondering things that are meaningless all day, their dreams are filled with vanity. He says, likewise is a fool's voice known by his many words. Think about the people that you know. Think about do they speak with clarity and purpose? Are they slow to speak and quick to listen? Or are they filled with their own thoughts and ideas and perspective? Those are people we don't often want to surround ourselves with because their words have no bearing and no fruit for us. We want to be surrounded with people that speak with the Lord's spirit, that speak with the Lord's truth. Solomon paints a picture of going to worship and a relationship of communicating with the Lord that is far distinct from our experience. It is a relationship of humility. It is a relationship of dependence. Then he goes on to talk about taking vows He says in verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. Now, this word for vow is translated vow. It's also translated as promise. I think that, that we read this in our 21st century perspective and think, well, we don't make vows to God, so this really doesn't apply to us. This is just for the super spiritual in the Old and New Testament that would communicate directly with God and would make agreements and covenants verbally with him. But we make vows to the Lord all the time. 
We tell the Lord, oh, Lord, I won't walk back into this sin. You've shown me this. This isn't really where I want to be, so I won't do this again. Oh, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do this. Solomon warns us very much against vows. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. See, we don't think of a vow as something that is a a transaction. But scripture says that it is, for a covenant is an agreement. And a vow is a transaction with the Lord. Solomon says when we make a vow, when we commit to the Lord, we are to follow through with it like one who is paying for something. For he, the Lord, has no pleasure in fools. What we're to understand from that is somebody who doesn't follow through with their vow is a fool. And oh, if we could understand how foolish it is to make a promise to the Lord and not keep it. For our word and our vow has consequences. It can be fruitful or it can be life-threatening. Pay what you have vowed, Solomon says. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. We remember this from last week when Solomon said, Oh, to that one, it would be better that they wouldn't be born. Solomon sees the severity and he says, it would be better that you not even communicate with the Lord, that you not even promise to him what you want in your life than to fail to follow through with your your promise to the Lord. Then he goes on and he says, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Now, he is uh, simply telling us, don't lie. Don't make excuses. Don't blame something or someone for your sin. Really, I think what he is saying is not to be manipulative. Manipulation is really a deeper spiritual understanding for what lying to the Lord is. It is providing an excuse for the inexcusable. See, sin is inexcusable, and that is why we need a Savior. It is why we need a deliverer from the effects of sin. And so manipulation is anything that justifies our sin before the Lord. He says, don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. This word for messenger can mean a physical messenger or a spiritual messenger like an angel. And I believe what Solomon is getting at is that that, that we should not be lying in any way to the Lord. We should not be committing error, which is deluding ourselves. See, when the Lord shows us what sin is and what righteousness is, if we refuse it, then we are really aligning with the spirit of manipulation. We are trying to twist something the Lord has shown us for our purpose. Then then he says, why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? And this is really kind of um, just a a complex statement. It it would be better to read it to say, why, comma, should God be angry at the excuse and destroy the work of your hands? This is to say that if we continue on in a lie against the Lord, if we refuse to acknowledge what we have been shown, the Lord would be justified 
to destroy all the work of our hands. Whether that's things that we have accomplished in our job, in our marriage, in, in anything that we're doing. There is a consequence to our sin, to our lying. Then finally he says, For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity. But fear God. So he's, he's using dreams again here, not in a positive sense, not as a communication or a message from the Lord, but daydreaming, fantasizing, and using many words, which I believe is simply a deterrent from the things of the Lord. So part B, Solomon is going to shift to things that affect our relationship with others. So he frequently talks about the oppression and the injustice that he sees in the world. And so first he says, if you see the oppression of the poor in verse 8, and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. In a nutshell, he's saying that injustice and oppression are a reality. They shouldn't surprise anyone especially in a bureaucracy is what he's describing, um, an official over an official over an official. He's saying, he's describing a territory and he is saying, why would you be surprised that there is injustice and oppression and evil that exists, especially when there are those who are more evil over those who are more evil over those who are more evil. He says in verse 9, moreover the prophet of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. He's imagining this, this world in which everything really is focused on serving the king. Everything is in a sense selfish. It is not for us, it is for someone else. Then he goes on in these, uh, this big group of verses 10 through 17, he talks really about the vanity of wealth, that greed cannot be satisfied, and money, and jobs, and houses, and lust, nothing can satisfy a love of abundance. He says in verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Now we should be careful here. He's not saying that money's evil. He's not saying silver is evil. He is not even saying an abundance is evil. But one who is consumed, one who loves these things, is in vanity. He gives kind of an explanation of this. He says in 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes. Basically, he's describing this syndrome where one gets more and so there are more people to take it, right? When people become famous, when they get wealthy, often lots of friends show up who need things, who want things, who are their good friends. Then he goes on in verse 12 and he says that the sleep of a laboring man is sweet 
whether he eats little or much. Now, he's not drawing on anything spiritual here. He's just simply stating a fact. Those who work hard usually sleep pretty good, right? Have you ever worked really hard and you sleep really good? But then he kind of compares that with, uh, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So another person who has an abundance, who is wealthy, he's saying, one who loves this abundance cannot sleep because of these things. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, verse 13. Riches kept their owner to his hurt. He's just saying that it's often the case that um, one who has great wealth, um, there are several ways that it can be destructive. Those, but uh, So first he's talking about one who is essentially clenching their fist and doesn't desire to share their wealth with anyone. Then he talks about somebody who has lost their fortune. Verse 14, but those riches perish through some misfortune. Then he has a son and there is nothing to give to him. So destruction from wealth. Then he talks about how great wealth will not keep somebody from anger, loneliness, or fear. Verse 15 says, And he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return, to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, with which, excuse me, which he may carry away in his hand. And this is also a severe evil, just exactly as he came, so shall he go. For what profit? As he who has labored for the wind, all his days he also eats in darkness, he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. So his point is to say that one who is consumed with abundance and wealth, that they will not really be any different from anyone else who is poor, who is lonely and angry and full of fear. So Solomon closes kind of with his, his typical way of finishing to say, Well, this is as good as it gets, so let's make the best of a bad situation. In verse 18, he says, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives for him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat it, and to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labors, this is a gift from God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. So for all the great understanding that Solomon begins with, he concludes, he, he concludes with this just petering off into nothingness to say, the best we can do is to eat, to drink, and to be merry. Worse than this, he says that really anyone who is wealthy might as well just enjoy what God has provided for them. To say that anyone with wealth, it is a gift from God, he says in 19. So Solomon's conclusion is that really, whether we have money or we don't have money, our end is the same. So the best we can do is probably just to enjoy it all the same. So this is a pretty unique passage, right? 
it begins with these great instructions for worship. And then it sets up an understanding of greed and selfishness that is absolutely not what God has for us. So I've been praying about this passage this week, and I've read it again and again, and I've been thinking, what is the connection between these two places? I mean, it might as well have been one passage and another, and independently they could have seemed to have some meaning. And so what the Lord showed me is that there is a parallel to these two passages. See, there is God and dwelling with him, and there is man, and there is dwelling in man's ways. We are cautioned about greed and selfishness in our worship, and then we are warned in the same way about how we live with our neighbor. And I believe what the Lord showed me is that our posture in worship should prepare us as we live in this world, as we interact with others, as we go about the activities of our day, like our work and our relationships. See, we want these two things to almost be separate, right? We come into this place and we've got worship a couple of times a week. We gather with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then really we've got to go out into the world where it is filled with vanity and selfishness and greed and control and all of these other places. And we want to divide them out. It's why when we read this passage, they seem so far from one another. But Solomon didn't begin with this reality. He began with this one. We are to begin with worship and with God if we are to survive the things of this world. In the second section, in our living the Lord kept bringing to my mind this idea of you can't take it with you. And it's so funny, this isn't a phrase I've ever used. I've never really liked that phrase. I'm sure we've all heard that. Oh, you can't take it with you. And that's essentially what Solomon is saying, that we should enjoy life today because we can't take it with us, right? Likely it will get misused and it will get gambled or dwindled away. We're not going to leave the wealth that we have to our children. Likely it will destroy us because we'll keep a tight fist on it in greed and selfishness, and it will be negative in our lives. We really can't take it with us, right? The best we can hope for is that anything we have at our disposal to just use it all right now because we can't take it with us. But this proverbial statement can be dangerous. That we're so focused on earth, on our possessions, that even in this statement, which seems so spiritually charged, right? It's vanity and it's self-centered. It supposes that either one of two things, either we don't worry about the things we possess, right, is important, and we make sure to use them now because they won't be of any use to us in eternity, right? Isn't that what everyone says? Instead of the goal, instead of the destination, 
which supposes what we, that we don't need any of these things. Right, so when people say you can't take it with them, what do they mean by that? Well, either they're pointing a finger that somebody is in greed and you really shouldn't dwell on these physical things, or that we're going to heaven where we don't need these things anyway, so we still might as well use them, right? They are all focused on us. They are all focused on here. It is not focused on eternity, where we're going, where they're useless. In the one sense, regarding eternity, we should understand that these things that are not eternal are not as valuable as we think they are. It's not that we should be so foolish to think that that homes and cars are not good tools, nor are boats and vacations not reasonable things for us to have and enjoy, but that our, our priority should be on what is eternal and not physical. Likewise, the the first part of this chapter, the Lord repeated to me to say, you can't take it with you. And I sat there and I read this again and again and I thought, what can I not take with me? And the Lord said, this sacrifice of fools. We should not be bringing it into the house of God. Solomon gives us this example here of hasty speech, and that's a good one. He says that we can't bring this sacrifice of fools into the Lord's house. We can't come in here with our our laundry list. We can't come in here with our lists of, of justifications and why we're doing what we're doing. We can't come in here and say, well, Lord, if this would just happen, I would do this. We know this much. This is, this is not hard to grasp, but I think it's more than that of what we cannot bring into the Lord's house. This sacrifice of fools includes, but it's not limited to, our perspective, our desire, our way, our spirits, our control. Solomon knows all too well that the things that we have inside of us are of no use to the Lord and there is no use offering them as a sacrifice. We should not bring these things in and package them up as if we're offering them on the altar. We should come into this house prepared to do exactly what he says. Prepared to hear rather than to sacrifice. To obey is what Shema means. We should come in here to obey and not to sacrifice. A sacrifice has been made for us. Our obligation is to obey it. For these do not know that they do evil. We have been warned though. And we know the evil in bringing our ways into the Lord's house. Instead of being rash with our mouth and uttering our heart hastily before the Lord, we should recognize that we are here on earth and he stands in eternity. We should let our words be few, but our hearts be humble before him. I pray that we would grow in our understanding that we cannot take our ways with us into his courts that we would understand Solomon's message not as an imperative just to understand what we can't take into eternity, but what we cannot bring into the holy place of the Lord. 
this scripture that Jesus offers has had a renewed understanding for me in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Amen.